so in the case of arable, instead of there being a story about why the tomatoes were mushy this year, uh, there can actually be kind of a body of evidence that say, well, all the factors this year were common across all these fields except for one, which is that you happen to be watering this one twice as much as all the others. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in this week. I mentioned at the close of last week's episode with Ann Helen Peterson that the thing I love the most about doing this podcast is the opportunity to learn from so many interesting people. This week's guest, Adam Wolf, is someone from whom we can all learn an awful lot. Adam is the founder and CEO of Arable Labs, a data science and technology firm in the agricultural business. Adam recently visited campus to speak at the University of Montana's Mansfield Center. You know, I'm not sure if any of you are like me, but if you are, you think a whole heck of a lot about food. What should I be eating? Where does my food come from? What should I feed my kids? How should we be feeding our growing population? Among many other questions. This conversation with Adam digs into some of those questions and more, and there are two key themes I'd like you to pay attention to. The first is that Adam uses the phrase coming into integrity when talking about each of our own personal journeys with food. It's a powerful phrase, and I've been thinking a lot about it since our conversation. The second point is that we talk a lot about data science. There's a ton of consternation in our world right now about algorithms, privacy, and how data are being used. And you saw in the episode a couple months back with John Chandler and Christopher, Christopher Preston that we dug into that issue. It's an important issue and one to be thinking carefully about. But in this case, you know, Adam repeats a well-known idiom, you can't manage what you don't measure. And in the instance of agriculture, this seems like a place where a lot of good can be done through the intelligent use of data. Anyway, I had a great time getting to know Adam and picking his brain on a wide variety of topics. I'm excited to bring you our conversation right now. So we're here today with Adam Wolf. Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so you are, I don't even know how to describe you, agricultural scientist? Is that kind of uh, how you classify yourself? Entrepreneur? Ag tech entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a scientist, maybe yeah. a natural scientist. Sometimes I say mathematical biologist. Hmm. You know, uh, so all these things that testify in some way of you know trying to put numbers to describe nature, mm-hmm. and you know, so eventually that landed with, gosh, how do we measure nature? Because so much of um, the science that I came from was all about numbers. Let's make models and you can use your imagination so richly, but uh, it's a fantasy if there's not data. And so I started collecting data and that sort of naturally found its application in agriculture. And it was kind of a weird moment where I was talking to uh, a venture capitalist who the university introduced us to. Mm-hmm. He said, have you run this past an agronomist or anything like that? Define and, agronomist. It's not a term the average listener probably has heard very often. Well, and my reaction was, I am an agronomist. Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> I, uh, 
I got a, an undergraduate degree in agronomy and a master's degree in agronomy. And when I was uh, at UC Davis, you know, we have this annual picnic day, you know, where all the different departments, you know, get in a truck and drive around the uh, campus. And our slogan for when I was a grad student for the agronomy department was agronomy. Look it up. So it's, love it. it's not a widely used term. I think uh, I found it on my grandmother's um, uh, a bulletin board. She was trying to, I guess, keep track of her grandkids. And it said, Adam is an agronomist. But she spelled it <laughs> E-G-R-O-N-O-M-I-S-T, agronomist. Okay. Um, but agro, it's kind of the study of crop production. Mm -hmm. And so if I went to, you know, Russia, as I happen to spend a lot of time, India, there's a lot of places around the world where if they ask what you do and you say, oh, I'm an agronomist, they say, oh, okay, understood. Right, they know you exactly know? what you do. Um, but, you know, in the U.S., they would have no idea. But in the U.S., if you asked what I did and I said, I... Um, I do content marketing. People would be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> well familiar with that. Yeah. Um, but in most places, it would just go over their head. So it's it's uh, we we have a society that is not uniquely, but, you know, very disconnected sure. from this stuff that we're drinking coffee. Mm -hmm. Yeah. An agricultural product. We just brewed up some drum coffee here for you. What do you think of the brew? Oh, this is amazing. I love it. I and, and I always suffer for a lack of good coffee on the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I uh, I was so delighted to show up here in the studio and see that you've got fresh roasted drum coffee here in uh, um, Missoula. So, Yeah, so you are here to give a talk uh, through the Mansfield Center for Ethics. Uh, I don't know the full title of the Mansfield Center division that brought you in here, but we're just really excited to get some of your time you know, this is an industry I've sort of thought a little bit about. I have some friends that work in the space. And uh, when you I, say this space, what space? I mean, I guess I would say ag tech. I have a close friend here in Missoula that works remotely for a startup um, in the Bay Area that's working on an aeroponics stackable machine. Okay. Um, both for greens and for marijuana, I would assume. And just sort of learning about the industry from, from his standpoint has been interesting. He's also a, a graduate of UC Davis, both undergrad and master's. So I can tell you're of my vintage because I describe it as marijuana, but the term of art in uh, this ag tech industry is cannabis. Cannabis, yeah. Yeah, as you were saying that, I, I sort of felt like correcting myself. <laughs> I, uh, I call it marijuana farming, but uh, nobody, nobody calls it marijuana farming. No. That's outdated, I assume. Yep. So anyway, um, yeah, let's talk about let's talk about this industry because it seems like an area where you've got really interesting, kind of progressive, scientifically oriented uh, efforts like yours with Arable Labs that we'll get into. But you've also, on the other hand, got these boogeyman's, you know, like the Monsantos and these big sort of. Um, conglomerates that people like to uh, just rail against for a variety of reasons. 
And what you do and what they do are very, very different, but all sort of grounded in a scientific approach to agriculture. Can you talk about maybe you know, just sort of the underlying philosophy you bring to your work and, and what made it interesting to you from the start? I mean, there's so much to unpack in that yeah, question. Yeah, I, I said a lot there. <laughs> um, we are all in the same industry. Like, I can't start arable and be naive that I, you know, I'm part of the food and agriculture industry, and that's the same industry that has the Coke industries, that has Monsanto, that has, you know, many of the largest uh, industrial conglomerates in the world. And it's also the same industry that makes drum coffee, that, yeah. you know, brings... Uh, you know, cardamom from overseas here, and I can put it on my dish. You know, so there's, there's, uh, agriculture is so all encompassing. And what I, I have come to realize is that there's kind of no way to be perfect in agriculture. Really, in much of anything, but yeah, agriculture specifically. In much of any, well, it, in much of anything, but. Uh, agriculture in particular is something that everybody has an opinion on what somebody else ought to be doing, mm. you know? So no matter what you eat or drink, you know, I could probably find a way to find fault with it. Yeah. And we sort of enjoy doing that as a society too. I mean, we fetishize our foods and we evangelize about them. And yeah, it's an interesting kind of category in which we feel like we're Free to, like you said, have have something to say about other people's choices. Evangelize and and find you know moral superiority, or or it's a way to express our values as right. a culture and as a society. Um, you know, people ought to be eating more fresh, you know, foods and things like that. And you start to wonder, well, how is it that we have this kind of agricultural food and agricultural system that we have um, and you know there's many parts of it that we're not entirely comfortable with so it's um, it's April we're in Montana uh, I had fresh strawberries and blueberries this morning right where'd those come from where'd those come from you know they came from some hot place and they were actually perfect you know, they were not, you know, uh, uh, flabby. They were just like fully bursting, pretty flavorful. And so there's a, I mean, a carbon cycle issue, mm -hmm. you know, so they're being flown here or, you know, there's some high speed transport. That's not like rail borne transport. Yeah, yeah. Keep them fresh. Um, maybe it's on trucks, but nevertheless, so there's, there's a carbon footprint to that. Um, and then in the production side, you know, there there do exist some amount of organic berries. But, you know, I'm in a hotel. That's food service. We're talking Cisco. Yep. Food service actually uh, has a gigantic claim on the consumer food dollar. You know, so something like a third of the, the food dollar goes to food service. Mm -hmm. If you divvy it up like. Yeah. And how do you define food service? Like the Cisco, the distribution <clears throat> Handling? Food, uh, uh, Sodexo, yep. stuff like that, yeah. you know. Um, every time I 
fly through Newark Airport, I'm treated to an OTG experience. So there's like, you know, every single, if you get down to it, except for Starbucks probably, every single place where you're buying any type of food is, you know, owned by the same conglomerate with right. just different chrome on the outside. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, what I'm getting to is that everyone is living out their ideals in some fashion or, or living out what they can uh, through the choices that they make about what to eat. And what I really think is valuable about what we're doing at Arable is bringing, helping people come into greater integrity okay. uh, with what they're doing. And this, you know, if, if everyone is compromised in some fashion, then everyone can come into greater integrity. And so what does coming into greater integrity mean? It's, you know, if you're a produce company, you know, you could be uh, losing less uh, on the production sure. side. Sure, more efficient. You know, more efficient on the kind of uh, harvest and, you know, downstream. So if you ship something that uh, later, you know, perishes in the store – that gets thrown out. So mm -hmm. why not, you know, send it off to, you know, baby food or frozen food uh, before you ship it? Yeah. You know, so the, it kind of avoids this part of uh, food waste. But if you are working for um, an agrochemical company, you know, Monsanto technically doesn't exist anymore. They're part of Bayer. Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got Bayer, Monsanto, BASF, Dow, DuPont, you know, uh, if you talk to any farmer, they are pretty grateful for those kind of silver bullet tools that deal with the pests in the field that don't require a lot of, you know, uh, uh, thinking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, so before Roundup, plant protection specifically weed control, is really complicated. And then once Roundup came around, it became really easy. So yeah. people are really grateful for that. Um, and yet, if you talk to anybody at these companies, they also are conscious of the kind of unintended consequences of, you know, massive proliferation of chemicals. So, you know, obviously there's... Uh, worker exposure, there is environmental exposure, have all kinds of kind of endocrine disruptors that show up uh, in waterways, mm -hmm. things like that. You have uh, it potentially people applying it and not even getting the benefit out of it. So there's kind of waste out of it. Sure. You know, so if we think about it, they're, they're kind of concerned about some of the same things that, you know, the organic strawberry producers are, which is how do we be more efficient with what we're doing so we are using less resources, yeah. you know, um, kind of resource efficiency is where we get and kind of human, uh, human health and safety. And it seems like that's the space arable is in efficiency. And startup venture, I'd love to actually, before we get into that, like I'd love to talk about kind of your path to becoming an ag, ag tech entrepreneur. So like you said, undergraduate master's at UC Davis, 
uh, directly into PhD at at Stanford, or was there a time in between those? Two? No, I guess uh, I finished my PhD around two thousand one, and I didn't start up again until two thousand five. And there was actually a couple years in between my undergrad and my master's. But I had, for my master's degree, gone to um, Central Asia, uh, okay. the Republic of Kazakhstan, which, you know, it, it has a stan in its name. So you think of it as like a desert country yeah, and whatnot. Yeah. But it's basically, uh, you should think Saskatchewan, hmm. you know, so Interesting. high prairie, endless, flat, steppe. Tough to uh, grow much there, I would assume. Well, it's um, it's it's cold most of the year. Yep, and it's dry, and you know the history of production there is completely fascinating. So uh, Russia faced food shortages. They were on the kind of losing side of history for how, you know, communism could be implemented. You know, it's very hard to impose kind of prices from the top down and yep. get everybody to respond to non-existent market signals, you know. So uh, there was not enough food production. People starved. So they had this really desperate need to increase uh, productivity. At the same time, <clears throat> they... Uh, are an oil-rich and kind of mineral-rich country. So they can generate all kinds of machinery. They can, you know, ship oil around. Kazakhstan itself has a huge amount of uh, petroleum production. Mm -hmm. And so the relative prices in the Soviet Union, energy was cheap, metal was cheap, and grain was valuable. Okay. And so they subsidized the um, sort of I'm searching for the right word. Uh, they they referred to these as the virgin lands, hmm. you know, the Tselina in Central Asia, uh, and you know these rich, fertile virgin lands that were conquered. You know, it's like the 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 the. Symbolism is is not hard to figure out, but uh -huh. the um, they ended up transporting, you know, urging and or exiling all kinds of people to Central Asia. So it was uh, uh, this place of huge cultural mix. Sorry for going on this long no, no, no. version. Yeah, where you've got Koreans and Chechens and Polish and Germans and all kinds of people who were on the borders of the Soviet Union and who were sent to internal exile so that they couldn't cause trouble. Sure, um, members of the intelligentsia in Moscow. Uh, you know, famous poet uh, Marina Tsvetaeva was sent to a neighboring village. Um, so you had all these people there, many of which were, uh, you know, German and Polish. They were good at farming in a place that should have been ranch land, mm -hmm. um, much like the American West. Yeah. You know, as you get into kind of western Nebraska, where it, it's no longer uh, quiet enough rain to support a healthy crop, 
it's pretty marginal. And yet, um, it was really important for the Soviets to get that grain. And so even though they had yields on the order of uh, one ton per hectare, which is like medieval England okay. level yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. wheat yields, and even though they only had profitable yields maybe three years in 10, um, the sort of size of the Soviet Union and the fact that they were kind of subsidized by the government in the form of, you know, all of their inputs and whatnot made it a, a, a venture that was possible. And then at the end of the Soviet Union, what did we find out? Well, globally, energy is valuable and grain is cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, worldwide sort of overproduction doesn't mean that there's not still hunger, but Nonetheless, so that kind of flipped the economics, and so there's mass abandonment of farms in the former Soviet Union. And here comes Adam, who I studied agricultural science. Right. And this is all super interesting, you know, as an agronomist to study, like, the rationale behind their their production system, spring wheat, uh, sort of one year of fallow followed by five years of, of wheat production. But then, you know, situating it in this global context, because if you take 20 million hectares of land that was abandoned, that's like all the wheat land in Canada, uh, then that has an impact on the global carbon cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that had some notion that this could be used for some kind of carbon credits, you know, development credits, whatnot. Um, Not... In retrospect, it wasn't uh, a really a great idea, but it sort of sensitized me to the idea that if you take a continent worth of plants, you know, it has impacts on a global scale. And so what I've always loved is sort of that human scale. Sure. You know, I can see the plants, I can yep. see the field, I'm managing this territory, and... Um, and then that larger scale, like the societal scale. Yeah, and thinking of it as a system, too, is probably something that not many people, uh, you know, the average person probably doesn't think too much about it. Back to your, you know, your, your example, the blueberries. Yeah. You know, we, they taste great. We love them, but we don't really think of all the implications of how they got to your, how they get to your mouth, essentially. Sure. They show up and then in, in different Types of foods are subsidized, and different types of foods are not. Yeah, you know. Uh, Which, so. yeah, we should. We, I'd love to get into that too. Um, let's talk. Okay, so I guess what I was getting at with the with the questions about your, you know, your education was, were you on the path toward academia, and then? got off that train to do arable or like what what was the process through which you I mean I was on the path towards wanting to farm mm-hmm. in college you know I was just so into And where'd you grow up? Uh California. Okay. Like uh you know East Bay. Right, San so Davis Francisco. wasn't too far from home. No. And you know my dad went to school there, my parents went to Fresno State. You know, it was just kind of a, a place, and I always loved knowing how to do things. Uh, and agriculture was always just like, gosh, you can understand anything through the lens of agriculture. You know, obviously there's all this kind of genetics. You've got, 
you know, soils and air and water and kind of that physical template. But then you've got, you know, the social dimension to it, the sure. political dimension. California has huge water products, projects. Uh, there's a legal dimension, you know, think about water rights and, mm-hmm. um, you know, conflicts in California as you have here in uh, Montana between what's delicately called surface water groundwater conflict, a.k.a., you know, fish versus farms. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's there's no real way to, there's no solution to it. It embodies variation in our society about, you know, values, mm-hmm. you know? So obviously if you're running a farm, you care about, maintaining a living you know if you are uh, running a fishing lodge you care about tourism so different people have different perspectives on how to best allocate these scarce resources so agriculture is kind of extraordinary and then i ended up you know in this uh as a as a researcher and then kind of going towards this kind of larger scale you know and we're already kind of nodding towards that when you're thinking about, you know, farms versus fish. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, we've got a a basin or a state, you know, and everybody's a voter. So let's, you know, think through some of these trade-offs that are embodied in that. And, you know, I landed at Stanford where, you know, there was a bit more of a, a global and kind of large-scale perspective on the interaction of all these phenomena. You know, so you've got, you know, uh, uh, land management changes climate. Mm -hmm. So it's called deforestation. You know, if you cut down a forest and you put in um, a farm, all the agriculture from that, those trees, or all the carbon from those trees ends up in the atmosphere. Right, probably not to mention all the diversity in that, in that ecosystem too. There's biodiversity, both the 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 sort of plants and animals, but mm-hmm. also human cultural diversity. Yep. You know, those are kind of ways of life that uh, increasingly are in danger. Um, the I, yeah, we could sort of spend a whole talk around that. I know there's so many threads here, Adam, that I can pull on it if we. We'd be here for well, hours. It's, it's really kind of fundamental, this yeah. relationship between kind of humans and nature and, you know, tools, technology, how we how we manage things. And, you know, so as I was getting into larger scale things, I kind of landed at Stanford, worked with these folks that are working at that global scale, developing models that show up in climate models. And I realized... A, you know, I, I really love it, but B, uh, there's kind of not enough uh, data to ever really make strong, that's an exaggeration, but there's very limited data to understand in a really rigorous way what's even happening sure. in this world, let alone how might you manage it for the better. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. 
Hi, this is Kelly Webster, Chief of Stuff at the University of Montana, and you're listening to A New Angle. You know, so say we got to the point where it's like, okay, if everybody turned off their faucets, um, you know, to, you know, 10% of the sort of optimum value, then we could solve this problem. And people would say, well, I don't even know how open my faucet is. Uh, I don't even know what the optimum value is. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't even know how to quantify because we don't know how much water we're putting on or how much we should be putting on, what that would impact as far as uh, yield or quality and therefore the dollars. So we don't even know what's the sort of trade-off here. Right. Um, and so if you think about, I mean, you you have a finance background. You know, there's so many facets of how do you run a business that uh, – that, are summarized and you you can't manage what you don't measure, you know? So if it's important to you, you start collecting performance indicators and there's a natural tendency to, you know, once you collect the performance indicator, you know, let's say customer satisfaction or returns or cost of production, whatever right, you right. say. Once you quantify it, then you say, well, what uh, what's our forecast going to be? And let's try to make it better. Mm-hmm. And then you compare what the forecast was with what it actually turned out to be. And then you say, oh, okay, our, you know, we can slowly dial that down so that, A, you're better at forecasting, uh, but B, you get better over time. And in, I would say, any type of natural resource management, uh, be it you know management of uh, freshwater resources, management of biodiversity, management of forest, management of farms, any any of these kind of natural resources that are that our civilization depends on, we have so little idea of the state of reality, so measurements, and so little ability to forecast what we might want to have happen that it's kind of impossible to make any sort of improvement, you know? So that's where I kind of landed at uh, running arable because since I've been uh, an undergrad, I've had this faith that if people had kind of the right information, they could make the right decisions. Hmm. Yeah, and arable is about measurement. You have a... A, a sensor is a primary product that that gets deployed in the in the field, so to speak. Well, it's about both. Yeah, you know, I guess my point is that you know, if if you have you know models without data, that is, you know, science fiction. And if you have data's data without models, that's just just hard drives nihilism. Yeah, yeah. So there's this interplay. Uh, between models and data. And those end up being kind of separate camps of, you know, most science. You know, on, uh, you know, physics, you've got theoretical physics and you've got experimental physics in, you know, I'm sure you could think of uh, how this applies in the business case. You've got obviously the people who write lots of equations and then there's the people who are going out and collecting like really interesting 
Yeah, the people uh, who publish papers about business and the people that actually do business. Maybe. Yeah. And you could say that probably with almost any field of academia. Any field where people naturally kind of fall into separate camps, depending on what their natural kind of proclivities are. Um, and yet, I think what's really kind of the core thesis of my life, and I think what we need to do in agriculture is sort of reinforce and create this interplay between models and data. And so on the one hand, you know, what's the data I need to constrain my model? Mm-hmm. Okay, if I'm going to develop a yield forecast, well, what's the data I need to do that yield forecast? And some of it's weather, but some of it's, you know, plant stress, and some of it is a forecast of the weather, and some of it's maybe an understanding of plant growth stages. There's all this sort of mix of, um, well, I've got a model, but then how do I constrain the model with data? Sure. And therefore, what data do I need? You know, and then uh, over and over again at Arable, we discover that, you know, we made a device that collects all kinds of useful data that has kind of an opinion, a thesis, you know, we're measuring the drivers of plant growth and the outcomes of plant growth. Yeah, just to kind of complete that circle. So you've developed this this product that measures the things that your model think are important for producers to be measuring. So it's it's yeah, your platform is is not just the the sensor. It's it's you know the the data modeling that come with it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And you know, what's my degree in biology? Sure. You know, it's not you know uh, electrical engineering. It's not product design. It's you know, uh, uh, I, I had to teach myself, you know, electrical engineering. I had to teach myself embedded electronics, you know, all this type of stuff to make the thing that collected the data that I wanted to do as a data scientist. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, that itself doesn't solve the problem. You've got this kind of model. You've got the data. You know, if you go to a farmer and say, hey, I've got a product that's a yield forecast, like you will get a blank stare or, okay, sounds interesting. I'm happy for you. you yeah, know? yeah. But I don't see what that has to do with me. Or if you say, listen, I've got all this data on, you know, canopy cover. It, it might capture some attention, but not for long. Mm-hmm. I was actually looking this morning at, a uh, blog post I wrote a couple years ago on projections of the uptake of satellite data in and imagery data generally in agriculture. You know, it's this technology should be cool. Yeah, it would seem hugely valuable. And yet, you know, companies are going out of business because they were not able to connect it to, you know, a, a, a model and therefore a decision. Sure. You know, it's like, okay, that spot in your field is red. Maybe need some attention. Okay, but like, why is it red? You why know? is it red and what to do about it? What do I do about it? You know? So there's a lot of thought uh, that goes into how to make these things. And really it comes back to this kind of conversational thread we started a little bit earlier around developing a forecast of what you expect and comparing mm-hmm. that to the actuals, what happens, and then 
interpreting that deviation and and driving it down. You know, if you say, okay, I'm, I'm uh, I've got this recipe. I'm expecting to grow, you know, 40 tons per acre of tomatoes, and actually it's 30. Like, who screwed up? Right. You know, or maybe the the weather was just different. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe the model was wrong, or you know, didn't have the right parameters, or whatever. Right. So what was wrong? It's like uh, when George Bush is reading My Pet Goat. In the very moment that uh, the the Twin Towers were, you know, being hit by airplanes, yeah. he's got this expression of, who screwed me? And I feel like there should be that moment of, you know, this is what I was expecting, and that's not what happened. And so either, well, in some fashion, the, you know, hopefully the data's not wrong. In some fashion, the model's wrong. And so I need to revise my understanding of how the world works. So the potential for the utility of this approach, undeniable, yet you said oftentimes when you're talking to a farmer, you get a blank stare in response or, hey, good for you. I don't know what to do with that. So Arable, I mean, you've been really successful uh, with venture funding. Well, you funding. have to take it to a decision point that's clear. I guess that's what I'm getting at is like what's the – how have you found – you found traction on the funding side. How have you found traction uh, you know, basically on the ground? for getting these systems and models embraced by by users? I mean, ultimately, so so data for its own sake, kind of interesting. To some. Know? To yeah, some. Yeah. You know, you've got some early adopters like, huh, this is cool. And maybe they have the patience like me to say, oh, I've got some idea of how the world works. I'll, I'll sift through this data and see if this lines up. The and I've got you know some anecdotes around that that are interesting, but then there's others that you know well, at least like turn it into. Let's say we can measure the 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 water requirements of crops. Turn it into a work order. Okay, save me some time. You know that that's instead of doing uh, eight steps to go gather all this information to turn it into a work order. This is just one step. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a lot of. You know, what are machines good at is this kind of automation, this data synthesis. And, you know, that has its place. Um, but it's still not, you know, it, it's it's adding convenience to somebody's life, which it shouldn't be underestimated how important it is to make someone's life easier. But it doesn't, uh, like, really make the jaw drop and say, I need to put this on every acre. For sure. And... You know, what's really compelling is, you know, if you've got that work order, these are how many hours you should have turned on the pump for, and then combine that with another source of information like, well, how much did it run for? And see, oh, you actually gave a work order to irrigate for four hours, and people were leaving it on for 12 hours for a week. And they're going, oh, that's why our tomatoes were so mushy. Okay. You know, and because it's it it it, sh- it summarizes everything in a discrepancy that is, you know, either above the line or below the line. And you could think, you know, if uh, if you were you know, a stock trader or something, buy versus sell. Yep. You know, or if 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 you're a home buyer, you know, or home seller, you think like, okay, 
my price is this, the market's willing to pay that, now's now is my chance to sell this house or I'm going to wait, you know? Yeah, when you talk about these discrepancies, they're probably discrepancies that have historically been attributed to just, well, all sorts of factors, randomness, the spirits, um, but also like general instinct about, oh, it was a rainy year or it wasn't a rainy year, like all these things that are kind of hard to... Storytelling. Yeah, whereas maybe <laughs> maybe the, the farmer then has some agency um, based on your product and service to have some effect on these outcomes that he or she didn't realize before. I, yeah. And it, it's so much of life is storytelling. Absolutely. You know, why'd this happen? Oh, there's, you know, people give you this whole, you know, long story. But, you know, there really is a, a knowable answer. Mm-hmm. Did you ever follow the work of this filmmaker, Errol Morris? Yeah, I love his documentaries. He, um, he's a fascinating person. He, he, I didn't realize this. He, he went to study the uh, history of science at Princeton with this uh, guy, Thomas Kuhn, who is uh, kind of famous for introducing uh, um, a, a theory of technological or scientific transformation. Yeah, philosophy of science. Notion, but he was um, he was kicked out basically because he had this huge conflict with uh, Kuhn, which actually wrote a book about recently. So you know, he's it turns out a philosopher whose medium is film uh, and increasingly writing and. His thesis as a philosopher is that there is a truth and it's knowable. You know, you might not ever have enough information, but there is just one version of the truth. Okay. And I think in a lot of people's lives, I mean, the, the, the reason why there's a philosopher, you know, spending his life on this is that there's obviously a different perspective on this, which is like, we don't know what's going on, you know? Could be all kinds of things. And I really love this idea that it's actually knowable. And if you knew it, you could deal with it, you know? So in the case of Arable, instead of there being a story about why the tomatoes were mushy this year, uh, there can actually be kind of a body of evidence that say, well... All the factors this year were common across all these fields, except for one, which is that you happen to be watering this one twice as much as all the others. And so preponderance of the evidence suggests that, there you, you know, that's what the issue is. And whether it's, you know, uh, inductive or deductive, there should be some sort of explanation. And uh, there's just... You know, agriculture is just considered such a, a, a random place, and yet all of my knowledge of how the world works say that, you know, plants respond in predictable ways to, you know, forcing. Mm-hmm. If you give them fertilizer, they uh, they take it up, they grow more leaves. You know, it's sure it's like that's that's the best part of reductivist science is to see that, like, A leads to B. But then putting it together, there's so many candidate A's 
that people just say, well, I, I don't know what's going on, you know? Um, and yet, you know, the best ones are always driving towards figuring out, well, what's going wrong and let's deal with that. So a lot there. And I feel like we could, I'd like to go on for hours in this conversation, but you, you've got a busy day here at the University of Montana and we've got to get you to your next thing. But what I would like to come back to as we yeah. try to close is is a statement you made. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but come into more integrity. Yeah. So, you know, your your venture, Arable, is doing its um, its thing to kind of come into integrity on a variety of levels. How can how would you advise individuals who maybe just sort of listened to this and sort of thought about the blueberries for the first time in their lives or had wanted to think about them more deeply or whatever? How can how can people at an individual level try to come into more integrity in the choices we make? It's uh, I mean, it's an interesting question. I am usually thinking about this that the consumer is my customer's 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 customer. Right. And so as a business, nobody ever went wrong thinking about who is my customer's customer and what do I do to make them happy. So let's say my customer is the farmer. My customer's customer is the processor. What does the processor want? You know, they're buying all those strawberries. They want to know, well, when am I going to get my strawberries? Right. Timing, consistency. Consistent quality, uh, yield, uh, when's it going to happen? So then, you know, why is the processor concerned about that? They want to deliver it to the retailer in a reliable way. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, the, the processors, say, any one of those food brands that you would ever see in the grocery store uh, doesn't deliver that which was promised, um, then the grocery store is like, hey, man, can't run a business this way. You know, this week we've got avocados. Next week there's no avocados. You know, like we've got a promotion going, you know, right. so that's lost revenue. People want avocados. Or we could have made other plans if we'd known, right. you know, why run the promotion? We could have, we, we could have picked up uh, kiwi fruits, whatever. Um, and so, well, why is the uh, retailer so concerned about that? Because they want to make the customer happy. So, or the, the their customer is the consumer. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the consumer is my customer's 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 customer. And... What does it take to make the consumer happy um, is really around uh, these pieces around greater integrity. So over, you know, all across the food industry, what we'll call big food, you know, the Kraft, Heinz, General Mills, Tyson, you know, like these these conglomerates that seem like they're from the 19th century and they are. They they don't make money on any of these, you know, kind of basics, Campbell's Soup, Cheerios, whatever it is. And part of that is because it's boring. Sure. You know, people want stuff that's interesting, has a story. Right. You know, oh, this is a, I was just reading Patagonia has a beer uh, that is made from a grain called Kernza. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. Yeah, something different. So it's a different grain. What's interesting about Kernza? Oh, it turns out that that's uh, like a perennial grain, so it actually reduces erosion. 
Oh, okay. So that's already kind of interesting that there's like this environmental benefit all the way back at the farm. And in fact, because there's only a handful of farmers growing Kernza, uh, they probably get a better price for it. Sure. And so if you go to their farm, they're not going to be like grapes of wrath. They're going to be like those happy farmers that you would love to picture in your mind. Right. You know, and who doesn't like to think that you are helping make you know, this country as a whole, a better place with, you know, just drinking a can of beer. Sign me up. Yeah. I mean, what you're painting is a picture of just awareness. Be thoughtful. And so, yeah, being able to choose things in an intentional way based on the ingredients that are on there, you know? Where would a person start? Like, is there a a, a particularly compelling book or writer or thinker other than you? Um, (laughs) Uh, on this stuff where like somebody's listening is just like, wow, I, I never thought of this stuff. How do I, how do I kind of open my mind to it? I, it's interesting. I, I was sort of asked to start coming up with a reading list for people yeah. joining Arable. And there's kind of three pieces that I really like. The Omnivore's Dilemma. Great book. By Michael Pollan yep. is excellent. Because it, I don't, I don't perceive it as being very dogmatic. Obviously, he's a professor at Berkeley, probably shops at uh, Whole Foods and all this type of stuff. And yet, you know, is able to sort of look at, well, why are things the way they are in each of these production systems from, you know, conventional corn all the way to the most kind of radical version of organic agriculture the other piece that I'll recommend here, uh, so the the it, it's actually yeah I couldn't probably get more opposite. There's a there's a place at Stanford called the Hoover Institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're not an economist, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's considered sort of uh, right of center, yeah, somewhat conservative, um, and they have a podcast called Econ Talk. And they interviewed the CEO of Cargill, uh, now former CEO, Greg Page. Mm-hmm. Cargill is uh, the largest, you know, a, a buyer of agricultural goods. So they, they buy grains and they sort of send it all over the world. So they're like the biggest processor. Sure. It might be... If it's not the largest privately held company in the world, it's it's going to be up there. And you think, okay, well, that's just – that's, you know, Hoover Institution and the largest corporation in food. You know, this is going to be some, you know, really reactionary yeah, – stereotypes are formed pretty quickly. And yet, you know, uh, Greg Page is just like the most extraordinarily – thoughtful person around finding balance in the food system, which, you know, of course, yeah, I, he buys organic food from uh, 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 the local, you know, place for his family, and yet he's got this other kind of balance of, you know, what's the role of subsidies in agriculture? Yeah. So that we have, you know, uh, uh, food security for people, and why is it that we've got kind of mass production 
uh, what we would call conventional agriculture is like, well, we got we need those calories. Yeah, we got lots of people to feed. You know, we're faced with a really hard challenge, and like in terms of caloric production, protein production. So we're talking about grains and uh, legumes. You know, uh, even meat. There's just not uh, a solution that exists in organic uh, agriculture for producing on the scale that's necessary with the resources that exist in this world, Mm -hmm. both labor and material. So, you know, you get into the complexity of, gosh, this is a hard problem to solve, you know? It is. And it has both this kind of hard kind of biophysical constraints. You know, you need land to grow food. You need sun or illumination, let's say. Um, and then on the other hand, agriculture exists in this kind of cultural, political context that shapes, you know, what are the foods that we get to buy? You know, what food shows up in your store? Yeah. Is, I guarantee, not the food that shows up in my store, you know? And uh, you can make choices that hopefully try to make more of the food that you like show up in your store. And, you know, that kind of rewards, you know, the companies that you wish and the ethics that you want and, you know, all that kind of piece that's an expression of your values because ultimately the food system, like food's eaten by people. Yeah. You know, like... It's not just a bunch of corporations out there, you know, pulling the puppets. Like, everybody gets to decide what they eat. You know, it makes some expression. You know, even if if we're talking about folks in, um, uh, uh, you know, food assistance, whatnot, you know, there's people at schools who are making choices about what to buy. Mm -hmm. I have a friend in Baltimore who runs the kind of school salad program. And there's a there's a cultural challenge towards, you know, how do we have a salad bar? Yeah. Never saw a salad bar before. Right. What's that? But, you know, she gets to make those choices about how to create that reality. And so over and over again, we find that, you know, as people, people get to make uh, choices about the food system that we want to live in. And uh, everybody benefits. Yeah. That seems like an awesome way to wrap it up, Adam getting people to feel more conscious about their choices. I certainly uh, will think about my choices in different ways after this conversation. And uh, it's so great to get time with you. And thanks for coming to share your message and, 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 and share some time with the University of Montana, our students, faculty, all of us here. So thanks, Adam. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here. All right. Hope you learned as much from Adam as I did. Check out Arable on Lab to learn more about what they're all up to. Okay, coming up next week, we have Dave Frankie, who is a principal at Frankie and Company. The Frankie family has been incredibly generous to the University of Montana, and in 2016, they made the single largest gift ever to the university, putting their name on both the College of Forestry and Conservation as well as our Global Leadership Initiative. Learn all about the family's approach to philanthropic investing and Dave's role in the process next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. 
These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. And before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aiden Morton. And interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.